0: Our sermon this morning is from Luke chapter 22, uh, verses 1 through 6. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles if you have them. You can find Luke 22, verse 1, on page 828 of the Pew Bible in front of you. So grab a Pew Bible and turn to page 828 if you don't have one, or look along on the screen. But I I tend to think that it's, you know, I tend to think it's better, more helpful, and it'll stick with you longer if you have a Bible that you're looking at in front of you. You can kind of... You know, track the entire passage uh, as as we go through it. So turn there. Uh, We are in the what's known as the Passion Week of Jesus, the week between uh, Palm Sunday when he enters in uh, to Jerusalem and Good Friday when he is when he is uh, killed. So, quick overview of the entire book of Luke, just to kind of make sure, kind of refresh, get us all on the same page. Luke. 1 through 2, narrative of Jesus' birth and childhood. 3 to 4, Jesus' preparation for ministry, temptation, baptism. Luke 4 to 9, Jesus' public ministry in and around Galilee, northern Israel. Calls his disciples, begins teaching and doing miracles. Luke 9 to 19, uh, Jesus makes this long trip from, uh, from, north, from Galilee in northern Israel down to Jerusalem in southern Israel. He's accompanied by his twelve disciples he's accompanied by uh the the women who followed him and were funding his ministry he's accompanied by dozens if not hundreds or thousands of others that followed along with him as well along the way he's teaching uh preaching doing miracles uh this is where we see all of the parables the good samaritan the rich uh you know the, the the rich ruler the prodigal son the dishonest manager, the persistent widow. I mean, all of these different parables kind of all happen on that trip from Galilee down to Jerusalem. Luke 19 to 22, which is where we are now. Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. He flips over all the tables uh, in the temple because he's really upset. And he, uh, he spends a few days teaching in the temple and inciting the anger of all of the religious leaders there. Luke 22, he is arrested. Luke 23, he's tried and convicted and crucified. Luke 24, he's raised from the dead and ascends back to heaven to the right hand of the Father. So that's, that's the, the gospel of Luke kind of in, uh, in, in its broadest Strokes. At the moment, we're in that Passion Week. Jesus has entered in; he's made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and he is teaching. And, and we're kind of in the days leading up to his uh, arrest and death on the on the cross. And so, this is the passage where this is the moment where Judas makes his decision to betray Jesus into the hands of the people that want to uh, kill him. He's been he's been thinking about it for a while. Right. Uh, Back before Jesus ever arrived in Jerusalem, we could see evidence that he was starting to that Judas was starting to go astray. Um, You know, whenever whenever the disciples would spend money uh, on anything, Judas would kind of get on his high horse and say, don't spend that. Let's save it. Let's keep it and give it to to the poor. But in reality, it wasn't that he wanted to give it to the poor. It's that he was stealing from Jesus and the disciples and kind of, uh, you know, Uh, embezzling and kind of putting this money aside for himself you can read about that in in john chapter 12 so judas for a long time has kind of been nursing and and cultivating and kind of secretly growing this love of the world over and against and at the expense of love for jesus and for the things of of god and so it's starting to kind of go starting to come to fruition here uh, in luke chapter 22 So, I'm going to read it, verses 1 through 6, then we're going to pray and we're going to spend some time considering it. It reads, Now the feast of the unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and he conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad. And they agreed to give him money. And so he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Father in heaven, we uh, pray, we ask your blessing on these next few minutes. Lord, we pray that you would impress upon us. Uh, the importance of guarding against sin and fighting against sin and temptation. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see and savor Jesus in his glory. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay. Now, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. This is why Jesus was traveling to Jerusalem from Galilee. He had done it every year. Most people in Israel would do it every year. Around this particular time, they'd make a pilgrimage to come celebrate the Passover at the temple. It was crazy, busy. It was this like just you know this intersection of religion and politics and commerce and tourism you know, kind of everyone would descend and it would be this big, huge party slash festival slash holiday. And the tradition, it kind of dated back uh, to the Old Testament, right? I mean, when you um, you start with Adam and Eve in the garden, right? Shortly thereafter, you've got Noah and the flood. And then after that, you've got Abraham being called out of his home and being called to uh, the, the, the area of Canaan. And that's kind of where God called Abraham. Well, the, next, uh, the rest of Genesis kind of tracks through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their kind of stories in the land of, of Canaan. Uh, by the end of Genesis, uh, J- uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob's son Joseph has been sent to Egypt. And he kind of puts down roots there and he becomes uh, a prominent a person in the government of Egypt. There's a big famine. And so uh, Joseph sends for his siblings and his family. He says, you guys come here because there's no bread in Canaan, but there is food here in Egypt. And I, you know, have been given favor um, uh, by, you know, the Lord has given me favor in the eyes of Pharaoh and everyone else. So they come. So Genesis ends and Exodus begins with the people of God kind of relocating temporarily to Egypt. Well, in Exodus, uh, you know, just turnover in generations. The new Pharaoh doesn't remember, uh, you know, Joseph and all of his contributions. So he enslaves all of the Israelites. And that's kind of where Exodus picks up. Uh, you know, Pharaoh is uh, enslaving the Israelites. Moses, the people get tired of it. God raises up Moses to bring them out. Moses goes to Pharaoh, says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to. And in fact, he, uh, you know, drives them even harder Gives them more work to do, less time to do it, more severe treatment. So God starts visiting these plagues on Pharaoh. Blood, frogs, gnats, flies, livestock, boils, hail, locusts, darkness. Right? All these. And then the last plague that God is going to visit is the plague of the, the death of the firstborn. In Exodus eleven through twelve, we read, Yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. At about midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land in Egypt, such as there has never been, nor will ever be again. But every man shall take a lamb, and your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. The whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. None of you shall go to the door of his house until the morning. I will pass through the land that night. I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments, for I am the Lord. And this blood shall be a sign on you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you or destroy you when I, seek to, when I strike the land of Egypt. And at midnight, the Lord struck down all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the middle of the night, and he and all of his servants... And all the Egyptians, and there was great. There was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. That's the story that sparked the passes, the Passover. Right? Pharaoh lets the Israelites go. They cross the Red Sea. They come to Sinai. God gives them His law this formative event that literally kind of just influences and kind of uh, informs everything else in the rest of the Old Testament. God has saved us from Egypt. God has saved us from slavery. God has defeated Pharaoh and the gods of Pharaoh on our behalf. God has redeemed us. God has liberated us. God has spoken to us and given us his word. We are the people of God. God is our God. All of that kind of identity that that kind of uh, formed the people of God in the Old Testament was all kind of brought into being at the the passover at the the exodus event they would celebrate it every year you can read i mean uh leviticus 23 uh numbers 9 deuteronomy 16 you can read over and over about how they're supposed to celebrate the passover and how they were celebrating uh the the passover be this, this event every year where God, God would just say, I want you to rehearse, I want you to remember, I want you to reflect on the fact that you were in slavery, you needed to be set free right? I'm going to set you free, right? I want you to take a a spotless, sinless lamb that's perfect and innocent. I want you to kill it in your place as a sacrifice for sin. The anger and fury and wrath of God that's meant for you because of your sin is going to fall on that innocent, spotless lamb instead of you. That lamb is going to absorb and endure the wrath of God. And when he does, the wrath of God is going to be propitiated it's going to be satisfied and there won't be any left for you and then i want you to take the blood of that lamb and i want you to to apply it to yourself i want you to cover yourself in it i want you to hide in the blood of the the lamb so that you publicly identify with this lamb that was killed everyone can see and know that you have identified with and hidden in the lamb that was killed and then I'm going to come and the, the wrath and fury is going to fall heavy on every single person because the wages of sin is death. I'm going to kill the firstborn male of everyone except for those houses that have identified publicly with that slain, sacrificial, innocent, spotless lamb. Those who have identified with him, those who have hidden with him, the, the wrath of God will not fall on them. The wrath of God will pass over them on its way to falling on everyone else. Instead of getting the judgment that you deserve, you'll get mercy that you do not deserve on the basis of a lamb that was killed as a sacrifice in your place to satisfy the wrath of God. That's the story of the Passover. Which kind of helps us place it, it helps us assign meaning to it, because we can see that, you know... It's not like Jesus just happened to be traveling to Jerusalem on the Passover and then he happened to coincidentally be killed uh, in Jerusalem on the, the cross, right? As if those two were unconnected. This was specifically designed and foreordained for Jesus to die at the Passover because God is effectively telling his people the Passover is about Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is, right, sure the Passover was about the Exodus, and it was about Pharaoh, and it was about Moses, and it was about delivering God's people from Pharaoh, and it was about, about bringing them to Sinai and speaking to them. It was about a lamb and a doorframe and, and, you know, passing over these homes in Egypt. But the deeper, truer meaning about the Passover is that it's about Christ. It's about God not just delivering his people from slavery in Egypt, but delivering his people from slavery and bondage to sin. Right? Not, just, not just bringing them uh, out of Egypt and, and kind of into the promised land, but bringing them into a new relationship with him. Right, Jesus is, I mean, uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 says that Jesus is our perfect uh, uh, Passover lamb. John in 129 says, uh, the, John the Baptist in John says, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is our Passover lamb who dies in our place for our sin as a sacrifice when he's crucified on the cross. The wrath of God that was poured out on that innocent spotless lamb in Exodus was also poured out on Christ on the cross. And just as the people of God publicly identified with God by applying the blood to their doorframe of their home, so too the people of God identify publicly with Christ. They turn from their sin. They trust in Jesus. They get baptized. They join a church. Everyone can see and know that that person has has individually, personally trusted in Christ. He has appropriated the, the death and burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and all that it secures, he has appropriated that to himself, right? Just as the destroyer in uh, Egypt kind of came in and and visited his wrath, killed everyone, uh, with the exception of those who were hidden in the blood of the Lamb. So too, uh, Jesus will return, and he will um, be he will visit his wrath on everyone who is not hidden in him and trusted in him. So Jesus comes to Jerusalem, specifically at the Passover. Jesus is going to die on the cross at the Passover because the Passover is about uh, Jesus. It always, it always has been. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking out how to put him to death guys have been preheating for a while now. They've been been mad. They've been brooding all throughout the, the Gospel of Luke. We kind of see that the religious leaders do not like Jesus. They're constantly questioning him, confronting him, quizzing him, trying to trap him, trying to corner him, trying to use something that he can say against him to discredit him or to... To cancel him, or they they invite him over to dinner, but then uh, it's just so that they can you know trick him and school him and tell him about how wrong he is and how right they are. They judge him for eating with sinners, and and uh, they judge him for being associated with with people that they don't like. And at times, Jesus fires back, and he says, "You know, these this is a." brood of vipers these are whitewashed tombs right they they worry about the outside they look presentable and impressive but inside they're they're dying and they are full of selfishness and and pride jesus is telling the people around him be wary of the, he says these people are going to hell they presume to be teachers but they are going to hell and if you follow them you will uh, end up going to hell just like they do and so, the religious leaders hate Jesus. They want to kill Jesus. They began plotting how to kill him back in Luke chapter 19. Because Jesus represents to these religious leaders a threat to the system that they had built on which they were kind of sitting on top of this of this power structure, right? They're, the religious leaders' entire life, their entire economy, their entire everything that they held sacred and valuable— all was, you know, built around religion and religious righteousness and the status and authority that they, that they, they knew the law. They, they had it memorized. They knew all of the nuances and all of the idiosyncrasies of the, of the law and all the interpretations and debates about all the details and the issues of the law. They, they followed the law perfectly. They practiced all of the rituals and procedures. They washed their hands all the right way. They, they attended all the right services, right? And because of all of this, like, religious stuff and their adherence to it they were kind of held up on a a pedestal right they if anyone had a question about the law you go to them if anyone had issues or disagreements you go to them and they're the final court of appeal everyone wanted to be like them everyone wanted to be near them everyone revered them everyone kind of bowed before them and honored them and that was the life of a religious leader in israel right you're kind of like the pope I mean, everyone just, like, honors and defers and just thinks very highly of you. And here Jesus comes along and says, that guy is not worth following. Those people are not worth following. They're going to hell, and if you follow them, you'll go to hell like them. That was a huge threat to upend and just dismantle and, and just deconstruct the entire system that they had built that they, frankly, relied on. That they were seeking how to put Jesus to death, for they feared the people. Because again, like the whole system is you know, here's religion, here's why it's so important, here's why we are the authorities in religion, here's why you need to come to us and follow us and listen to us because of everything that we know about religion. And it was kind of this um distinction, right? You've got the the, the ruling class, you've got the aristocracy, you've got the the you know the religious leaders, and then you've got everyone else. And so there was a sense in which they were on top and all of the people needed them and were looking to them, but there's another sense in which they needed the approval of the regular, it's like a celebrity, right? Like a, a celebrity is like, they are rich and famous and they go to all of these, you know, fly on private jets, VIP rooms and everything, but but. Their celebrity exists because people follow them, want to be like them, are, are interested in who they are and what they what they do. If if regular people stopped caring about celebrities and stopped wanting to be like them and wanting to live the life that they lived and stopped googling them and following them, then they, like it would it would they would lose their they would lose their celebrity ness. And so the religious leaders kind of felt like that. They need us. The regular people need us to interpret the law and to be the, the final court of appeal. But the dirty little secret is we need them. We need them to love us. We need them to like us. We need them to approve of us. We need them to think highly of us. And so if they stop, you know, um, you know, fawning over, like if they stop idolizing us and idealizing us, then our whole system is going to come crashing down. And so they feared that. They feared the people, and they feared the loss of the approval, and the, the loss of being esteemed by the people. And Jesus, you know, was kind of like messing with that, and kind of making it look like maybe they were going to lose the approval of, and, and the the being esteemed by the people. And so they feared that, and because their idol of people's approval was being threatened, they hated Jesus, who in their eyes was the threat to that idol, and they hated him and they wanted to murder him. So religious leaders are trying to put Jesus to death because he represents a threat to the people's, uh, you know, following them, and then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. So now, Satan himself arrives on the scene. He's been he's been around the whole time. We saw him first back in Luke four uh, at the temptation. Jesus kind of brings uh, Satan brings Jesus into the wilderness to tempt him. Right? Tries to distract him, disqualify him, deter him from his mission. That doesn't work. So kind of discreetly behind the scenes all throughout the Gospel of Luke, Satan has been, you know, organizing uh, persecution and suffering and just different things to try to, you know, take Jesus off course. That doesn't work. So now Satan thinks, let me attack Jesus' inner circle of friends and followers and and confidants. Of course, the the irony is the irony is that, that Satan is uh, tapping Judas to betray Jesus so that Jesus will be killed so that he can deter Jesus from his mission, so that he can ensure that Jesus' mission is not successful, so that he can dethrone God and kind of set himself up on the throne instead of God. The irony is that that is what Jesus' mission was. Jesus' mission was to save his people, and the means through which he was going to save his people was to die on the cross. And so, you know, Satan seeks to thwart God's plan by setting into motion the exact thing that's needed to accomplish God's plan, which is a little bit ironic and a little bit kind of... Like, you wonder why, right? Like, is Satan... Does he not know what's coming, or does he not... Understand God's ultimate plan to die on the cross for the sins of His people. Why would He do this? Why would He participate in the plan that God has uh, architected from the beginning? And I think the answer is because He was deceived. He was del- deluded. Right? Um, Revelation twelve refers to Satan as the deceiver of the whole world. So there's a sense in which Satan is this Machiavellian. Right, he's deceiving other people while he himself sees all the moves and he kind of knows everything. But there's also, I mean, Galatians six three says that it's not—it's possible to not just deceive others, but to yourself to deceive yourself and to be deceived because of pride and self exaltation, which is the exact thing that Satan fell prey to. So I think that Satan has just deceived himself here, and he knows full well. That if Judas betrays Jesus and if Jesus dies on the cross and if uh, on the cross Jesus satisfies the wrath of God and accomplishes the salvation of his people, then Jesus and his people can be together forever. The exact opposite of what Satan wants, but he's deluded himself. He's deceived himself to think, even though I know that to be true, I'm going to convince myself that it's not. I'm going to convince myself that if I can kill Jesus, then that will be a win for me and a loss for God, despite the fact that he knows full well that Jesus is dying on the cross is exactly what he needs to accomplish the salvation of his people. So Satan enters into Judas and seeks to inspire him and influence him to to betray Jesus to death. And Luke specifically mentions that Judas was of the number of the twelve. I mean, we kind of, we already knew that. We'd seen that, that uh, Judas was of the, of the 12 back in Luke 6, I think, when the, the, 12, the disciples were kind of gathered together. But Luke goes out of his way to, to reiterate it here, almost as if to say, don't forget, like, let's not forget. Let's not overlook. Let's not move too quickly past the reality that Judas was in Jesus's inner circle. Judas the man who betrayed Jesus to die was one of the twelve people that Jesus handpicked to be his closest friends and confidants and associates and, and followers. Right? There's only I mean, really, just Peter and James and John were the only people in the entire world that were closer to Jesus than Judas. So one, that's a, that's a sober warning for us. To be wary of this idea that because I have done this, or because I've accomplished this, or because I'm a part of this group, or because I'm this close to Jesus in this way, I don't need to worry about sin, temptation. Right? There's no, no one is, is above, no one is beyond the need to be on guard against sin and temptation. Judas certainly wasn't. And if anyone would have been, it would have been someone like Judas. It's also instructive for us to think. I mean, when we think about the idea of betrayal, when we think about the idea of being abandoned, when we think about the pain that is involved in someone close to us turning their back on us, like Luke seems to want to remind us, like, that happened to Jesus Jesus is not unfamiliar with the suffering that you experience when your best friend, when, when someone that's particularly close to you turns their back on you, leaves you, disappoints you, slanders you, chooses someone else or something else over you. The sting of heartbreak and loss and betrayal that you feel. Jesus knows that. Jesus is familiar with that. Jesus has been through that. When we go to Jesus and trust in Him and rest in Him and confide in Him and rely on Him, we are resting in and trusting in a person who has experienced the same kind of heartbreak and loss and pain that we have experienced. It's also a reminder that that, like, despite the fact that relationships are risky, right? uh, They're they're worth it, right? Jesus. could have gone his entire life without having any disciples or he could have picked 11 out of 12 and left off Judas right but but Jesus recognized the reality that relationships are important they're messy they're risky but they're worth it and they're important i mean god himself is a relational god God is triune. God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They're in relationship with one another. They're in community with one another. Relationships matter deeply to God. This triune God, who is himself relational, then created an entire world and created humanity and wants to be in relationship with them. Relationships matter to God. Jesus came to earth and then he gathered these 12 men into his inner circle and he wanted to be in relationship with them all the while knowing that it's risky. One of these guys might, in fact, will betray me and cause great pain and suffering for me. Nevertheless, it's worth it. Because relationships are worth it. If you don't have close relationships with someone in this church, I would just challenge you with the reality that relationships are worth it. Right? It's worth the mess, it's worth the risk to go to someone, to pursue them, to... Ask them to be a friend, to share a meal with them, to ask them to disciple you, to, to ask them to let you disciple them. Because relationships are worth it. So Satan enters Judas, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away. Judas went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers as to how he might betray him to them. It's kind of the first step. The first step of the downward spiral of Judas and his falling away from the faith is him him surrounding himself by and, and kind of aligning with and becoming almost indistinguishable from the, the world, right? Jesus doesn't immediately go from being this on-fire disciple for Christ to betraying him. He kind of uh, as the slow, gradual, you know, he kind of takes a prolonged look at money and power and then kind of allows his, uh, you know, mind to linger there. And then he kind of gratifies and kind of cultivates this love of the world over and against this love of of christ and then he goes and kind of immerses himself in the world you know surrounds himself by and kind of allows the influence of the world to kind of take over him and kind of speak uh you know into his life it's kind of a slow process of being formed by the world and it's an interesting It's an interesting principle that we kind of see, which is that, you know, the more we allow, the more we surround ourselves by and allow ourselves to be influenced by the world, the more we will become like the world. In 2 Corinthians 2, or yeah, 2 Corinthians 3, Paul exhorts his people, Paul exhorts the people of God to behold the glory of the Lord so that we will be transformed and conformed into the image of God, right? The logic of 2 Corinthians 3.18 is stare at Christ, behold Christ, right? Gaze upon Christ, and as you do, you will become more and more like Christ. You will begin to image him more and more. so that's true in the positive sense, right? Practice the spiritual disciplines, read your Bible, pray, meditate, attend church, gather, be encouraged by, and be around other believers, and you'll begin to look more and more like Christ. And the converse is also true as well, right? Take it, consume too much of the world, surround yourself by the world, and you will begin to look like the, the world. Watch too much TV, entertain yourself to death, Right? Inappropriate content, gratuitous violence. You'll become desensitized. You'll be more at risk to fall victim to it. Watch too much, you know, cable news, read too much, you know, stuff that's designed to whip people into a frenzy about how the other political party is bad or, you know, they're all trying to, they're all racist or they're all anti-God, or they're all trying to ruin this country, and you'll start to internalize it, and you'll start to become anxious, and you'll start to become agitated, and you'll become resentful and and combative. I read an article this week that said that over the last couple of years, and the pandemic I think had a lot to do with it, uh, people's average screen time has soared, and it's now approaching 90 hours a week. That's how much time we spend TVs, computers, phones, you know work play whatever it is 90 hours a week of screens we go to church for like an hour maybe an hour and a half so, so it's not a favorable ratio like it's not it's not a, you know you have a 90 to 1 ratio of like the the people of god and the word of god to the 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 garbage of the of the world and we you know the more we consume, the more we immerse ourselves, the more we begin to take on the characteristics, right? You go, if all you do is go to shopping malls all day long, you'll grow to become more consumeristic. If all you do is hang out with bad parents, you'll become a worse parent. If you hang out with people who are bad with money, you'll be worse with money. Hang out with people who are mean, you'll become more mean, right? You become what you behold. You grow to look like what you are looking at. Consume enough of something and you will begin to take on its characteristics. Of course, in verse 5, for the Christians who do that, for those who lean into the world, want to go and and confer with and immerse themselves in and be influenced by the, the world, the world is happy to accommodate. It's happy to oblige. It's happy to give you whatever you want to keep you locked in and hooked in. They were glad and they agreed to give Judas money. Right? This is Satan. Using the world as as bait to, to Satan is using the world to bait the hook of the, the flesh and the sinful nature. You want money, sex, power, status, influence, whatever it is, you name it. I'll give you whatever you want. I promise I'll make you happy. I promise you'll be satisfied. Right? You'll have everything you've always wanted. Your life will look exactly like you've always wanted it to be. All the, all the rules and restrictions that God has placed on your life that are making you miserable, they'll all be gone. All the fun and joy and pleasure that God is demanding that you deprive yourself of. You can indulge in that. You'll be the king. You'll be in charge. You'll be at the center. You'll have whatever you want. It's a strategy of Satan. Using the world to entice our sinful nature to pull us away from God. Satan, I said it a couple weeks ago, Satan is an abolitionist disguised as, Satan is a slave trader disguised as an abolitionist, right? I promise you that this will make you free and happy and whole and healthy, but in reality it's going to bring suffering and death. And so we would do well to, to learn from Judas here and to be aware of and to kind of be on guard against these kinds of things as they, they happen in our our lives. So Satan influences Judas, right? Judas immerses himself in the world. He starts to be influenced by and take on the characteristics of the world. The world gladly gives Judas everything that he wants, everything that he thinks that he needs to keep him going away from God and toward the world. And then verse 6 he consents and seeks an opportunity to betray Jesus to them in the absence of a crowd. Right? Judas doesn't say, okay, I, can, I, I will betray Jesus, so let's just go... He, he specifically looks for a time and place to do it in the absence of a crowd. Not in public, when everyone's watching. Right? Sin, sin... Uh, is at its strongest. Temptation is at its strongest. Sin thrives in darkness and anonymity. It suffers and dies in the light where everyone can see it. Right? This is why adultery, no one commits adultery in a public place. They go to a private place and lock the door. There's privacy, anonymity. Right? This is why this is why the same person who will be really nice to people in public if they're like leaving a comment on a YouTube video, it's really mean and nasty. It's because there's this feeling of anonymity. No one can see me. This is why addiction can feel so overwhelming and impossible to overcome when no one knows about it. Because sin thrives in the dark and thrives in anonymity. So Judas is looking for a way to indulge in sin, but he specifically wants to do it in privacy in darkness and anonymity. And this principle is instructive for us as we're seeking to fight against sin in our lives. Just to know, right, like the whole a coach with a boxer his whole, or a coach of a football team, whatever, is to help you get better but also help you know the opponent. Here's their strengths. Here's their weaknesses. Be prepared for their, like, he's got a, a strong right hook, so guard against it. Or he leaves himself open to whatever. I'm not a... But So like, that's who you're fighting against, so now be aware of that. Be on guard against his strengths and be looking to exploit his weaknesses. And the strength of sin is the absence of a crowd. The strength of sin is darkness and anonymity and, and privacy. And the weakness of sin is, is public and in the light and out in the open. The reality is that you will... Indulge in any, you'll indulge in any sin or every sin that there is when two things are present. Desire to indulge in that particular sin and an opportunity to indulge in that particular sin. Pride, selfishness, greed, anger, deceit, adultery, consuming things that are inappropriate, Gossips or whatever it is, right? Whatever sin it is, you will indulge in it if you desire to indulge in it, and if there's an opportunity to 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 indulge in it. So, the long-term strategy for every believer, as we fight against sin, is to choke out and fight against sin at the desire level, right? Is to is to get to a place where you know. I, I love Jesus more than money, right? I, maybe, maybe the sin in view here is uh, deceit or theft. And so I love Jesus more than money. I'm not going to steal even though I could and get away with it. There's this long-term process of, of practicing the spiritual disciplines and walking with Jesus and beholding him and becoming like him and desiring him more and more and falling more and more in love with Jesus so that we fall out of love with the world. To where we get to where, you know, I have an opportunity to take something that's not mine. I'm not going to do it because I don't want to uh, bring reproach upon the name of Christ. And I don't want to bring distance between me and Christ. That's kind of the long-term fighting sin at the desire level. Right? We, we cultivate a desire for Christ. And then we let this new affection have an expulsive power on the old affections that we had toward sin. Ultimately, we'll arrive there in heaven and we're trying to get there here and now. But in the short term, while while we are pursuing that long-term eradication of the desire for sin, the short-term battles are won by, at times, uh, minimizing or eliminating opportunity for sin. So, I'm not yet at a place where I can be around money and not take it, or... I'm not yet in a place where I can have the chance to slander someone and decide not to do it. I'm not yet in a place where I can have an opportunity to gratify that simple impulse and not do it. But I'm going to fight the short-term battle by eliminating the opportunity. If I'm tempted to, to take money, I'm just going to avoid scenarios where there's money that I can take and no one can know about it. If I'm tempted to slander someone, I'm not going to hang out with people who tempt me to slander others. If I'm tempted to sleep with my boyfriend or girlfriend, I just won't, I'll, I'll only see them in public. If I'm tempted to look at inappropriate content, then I'll put accountability software or cut off the internet or whatever it is. Right? If, I, if I'm tempted to get road rage every time I'm late, I'll just leave early. Right? Like Whatever the opportunity is that, that makes me more tempted to sin, I'm going to avoid the opportunity as I work toward choking out the desire for sin. Judas, as he is falling further and further away from Christ, falling further and further away from the faith, he starts to nurse and look for and facilitate opportunities to sin. And Christians, as we are fighting against the desire to sin, we should along the way be fighting to avoid and eliminate opportunities to sin. Satan uses the world, uses the things of this world to tempt us and take hold of our soul. He deceives us into thinking that those things will bring pleasure and joy, despite the fact that he knows they will only bring pain and regret and death. He uses what what the world has to, to indulge, gives us opportunities where we can indulge and no one will know. And our task as the people of God, reading this counterexample, is to kind of Go into the spiritual battle with eyes open, fully aware of what Satan uses to do harm to the people of God. Recognize his strategies and be on guard against them. Eliminate opportunities in our lives where we'll be tempted by sin. And as we do, right, again, short-term battle, eliminate opportunities for sin, long-term war, cultivate a love of and affection for Christ that will eventually expel the old affections for The world. The long term strategy for fighting against sin and succeeding as a Christian is to see and savor and enjoy and behold and therefore become more like Jesus, who is our true Passover lamb, right? The the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who gives himself as a sacrifice for us, dies on the cross in our place for our sin, to satisfy the wrath of God for us. So that when the, when the wrath of God falls on everyone else and everything else, it will pass over us by God's grace. So that we can be forgiven. So that we can be reconciled to God and live with Him in His presence under His rule. The, the, the long-term war strategy for succeeding as a believer is to cultivate a love for Jesus as our great and glorious Savior, to live in view of him, and to turn from sin, trust in him, and walk faithfully with him instead of falling away from him into love with the world. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we read this text and it is a sober reminder of Satan. And his intent to harm us. A reminder of uh, Satan's strategy to weaponize the world against us. And about our own sinful nature that is so easily tempted by the world. It's It's a sober reminder that sin is crouching at the door. It wants to destroy us. And that we must kill it and rule over it. And so we pray, Lord that you would give us grace to turn away from sin and self and to turn to Jesus who satisfied the wrath of God so that we could be saved. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.